Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have a good crew here in the studio. Morning, Bob. Good morning. Philip. Good morning, guys. Dustin. Good morning, Brad. And we've got Dr. A.J. Tarpoff, who's a beef extension veterinarian here at Kansas State, to join us this morning. Good morning, A.J. Morning. We're excited to have A.J. on. He's going to talk a little bit about his research that he's done on limit feeding and shade. We're also going to talk about a listener question on heat stress as well as preg check time. I know, A.J., you've got some meetings coming up. You've always got meetings coming up in your position, but one of the really good ones is always the Stalker Field Day, which is September 28th here in Manhattan, Kansas, at the Stalker Unit, and that's where you've done some of your research, and I think you'll be presenting there as well. Uh, so this this is actually the first year that I'm not presenting at the uh, Beef Stalker Field Day, uh, but Dr. Dale Blasey is uh, is in charge of the Stalker Unit, uh, has been in charge of, has really made this a kind of a, a capstone, a really, anybody in the industry, they want to be here. And uh, we've got some, we're going to be covering some labor shortage issues, uh, how to navigate some of the labor concerns that we have in the cattle markets today, uh, economic outlook from some of our colleagues over in Ag Econ. Uh, really looking forward to a wonderful day. Uh, we're going to have a brisket lunch, so that's always a big key, uh, key driver. But uh, come to Stocker Field Day on, on, on September 28th. Uh, it's always, a, we'll have shade, so we'll talk about shade later, but there will be some shade out there at the unit for uh, people to be under. Excellent. So that'll be a, that'll be a good discussion and always good to get the research updates and we'll we'll hear about your research in a minute but I wanted to ask you guys I was driving in this morning and actually listening to Van Halen on mm -hmm. my way in and it made me think and I don't know when you guys were kids did you go in high school did you cruise up and down the road where you would just drive from one end of the road to the other and back did you guys do that oh absolutely I'm old enough that that was definitely a part of high school uh, the culture then. I, fig we, I figured you'd be in. I yeah, didn't so know if AJ an, and Philip would have. We had an L-shaped deal. You know, you'd go turn around at the uh, Pizza Hut in their parking lot and then go down to the main corner, go down to the other street, and you'd turn around at the grain elevator. And so you'd just make that L yeah. over and over. And See, we, we, had a, we, had a, we had a straight line. But what, what I want to know is what did you listen to? What was your band? Give me a band or two that you would listen to in high school whether you were cruising or not cruising. Give me your band. So in industry, <laughs> the cruise strip was like two blocks long. I mean, that was all. There so was. you had to have somebody with short songs. Yeah, we had short songs. <laughs> so, but no, see, in high school, it had been country music. So like John Michael Montgomery and Garth Brooks and, and those. Okay. Bob? Yeah. I'm going to say Kansas because we were big Kansas fans right there because they were just down the road in Topeka. They'd play, play in Holton sometimes. So Dustin? So yeah, we actually had a little longer than, so uh, Phillip's just neighboring town over, but we would head south of our high school one mile and there's this little triangle. You just turn around and head right back. And back then I was probably in the country phase and it would have been Alabama and Garth Brooks. Yeah. Well, and uh, we, we didn't really cruise in town because we tried to stay outside of town as much as possible. So, but out in the country cruising, we absolutely did. But uh that's when Texas country really started getting going, and it was Reckless Kelly. Mm. Uh, my buddies and I used to really, yeah, everybody was listening to Reckless Kelly and Corey Morrow, Pat Green. Uh, that, that's, that's when we were really getting into that. Awesome. You guys, are, you guys are good, diverse. We should go cruise. We should bring we that should back again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should bring that back. But uh, 
switching to a more serious topic, AJ, you've done the, the last several years, there's been a lot of discussion, especially in the beef industry, relative to heat management, because there are times in most summers where you have a few hot days, depending on where you are in the country, there's more or less hot days. But how do we manage those cattle? And I know you had a good investigation that you did that looked at the impact of shades and also the impact of limit feeding with different rations. Tell us a couple things that you learned in your study. Yeah, so yes, we looked at uh, nutrition and we looked at shade, shade or no shade. Uh, so we wanted to try to figure out, okay, if we use shade, is that advantageous? Uh, what does it do? Okay, do we? does it help with gains? Does it help with efficiency? Does it help? We took a different stab and started measuring water consumption because water is a really important resource. So uh, can we get some more data and start building some resources and building a database on, on water? Uh, so that, that's kind of pretty easy with shade. Now nutrition, this is where we kind of had to dive into kind of our nutritional physiology to figure out, okay, what makes sense and what doesn't? Well, there's something called the heat of fermentation. Okay. How much energy needs to be expended in the, in, you know, during fermentation to be able to digest something? So essentially, we think about it differently is the harder it is to digest something, the more heat of fermentation might be associated. So that got us thinking, okay, well, if we have a highly digestible feedstuff, do we produce less heat, maybe have less heat stress? And on top of that, if they consume less feed, but at a higher energy level, what does that do? Does that help us on, on the heat of fermentation side? Does that help us physiologically in dealing and coping with heat stress? And that's what, what really what we dove into. So we kind of had both extremes, really high forage rations, and then we had uh, a, a very digestible high co-product, corn co-product, we use a corn gluten feed, and really had those really drastic difference of nutritional status, and then tried to measure and figure out what happened. So what'd you find out? Yeah, well, I was very, I was surprised. I figured there would be some type of interaction whenever we started stacking some of these heat stress mitigators, so to speak, and we really didn't. We did not have a, a kind of a interaction between the two. I was hoping for an additive effect, but I found some, we found something that was even better, in my opinion, is through limit feeding, high energy, you know, high co-product co rations, compared to ad libitum as much as you can eat, high forage, that worked to help mitigate some of those heat issues. Okay, we had increased in average daily gain. Obviously, as programmed, we had a much higher level of feed efficiency, but we also reduced water intake. We reduced panning score. We actually measured uh, panning scores as an indicator of coping with heat stress. So we had less panning scores, all of those just from changing feed management. And on the flip side, shade working independently, we found the same thing. Increase in average daily gain, increase in feed efficiency, decrease water consumption, uh, decrease panning scores, all, all very statistically significant because we had two years of data that we stacked on top of each other. It, it was a wonderful, wonderful study that we were able to complete. Yeah, so even though no interaction, by doing both, some limit feeding of a high energy dense diet as well as some shade, you got, you got both, both benefits. You do, you do. Since they work independently, you can use them in conjunction together. You can use them independently. And, and I, I like that because it gives producers choices, okay? One of, some of these practices that uh, you know, we use to help mitigate heat stress might work on some operations, but it might not work on others, and that's okay. But we can figure out different management tools that they can use that, that will work in their given scenario. So how big were these calves? Yeah, so these calves, we brought them in. Uh, they're roughly uh, five to 600 pounds. 
and we grew them for about 100 days uh, during uh, June, July, and August mm -hmm. uh, into early September. That's So obviously we wanted hot temperatures, we wanted uh, starting cattle during that growth phase. And we chose growing cattle because a lot of the emphasis is on finishing heavy cattle. Heavy fats, yeah. Right, mm -hmm. Heavy fats. Uh, we had limited data uh, out, you know, out in literature on anything in the backgrounding phase. And what we see kind of throughout industry is we have a lot more independent backgrounder operations that are starting these cattle through all months of the year. Well, what about them? What can we do to help the entire system? Not just at the feedlot, there's been a lot of work that's been done at the feedlot, but what about those grower operations? And what can we do to, to maximize health and productivity of those animals from weaning all the way through? So how do we make each day count? You talk about limit feeding. I was wondering if you could just maybe a little expand on that. What is it or, or how much did you limit them? Mm -hmm. No, great. Uh, so uh, limit feeding. So Dr. Dale Blasey at the Beef Stocker Unit has been doing a lot of limit feeding work over the last uh, several years. And uh, limit feeding is nothing new. It's uh, the idea and the thought process behind that. It's been around since the 80s. Uh, but what has kind of revolutionized here as of late is use of corn co-products, whether distillers or corn gluten feed, where we can have a fermentable fiber source, a high protein source, high energy source, but we don't have all the starch. So essentially we are uh, reducing, we, we have a, a more concentrated ration rather than a big fluffy ration. So it's the same energy density, but we, they just don't consume as much. So typically we reduce intakes to about 2.2% of body weight. So it, it's on a, a fed on a body weight basis. We reduce that by, uh, you know, down to 2.2, which ad libitum intake might be 2.7, 2.8. So we're reducing a little bit of that percentage of body weight that they would eat, keeps them hungry, keeps them at the bunk. They're still consuming the same amount of energy but we don't have any of the negative effects of the starch, like acidosis or anything like that. And we, and over the last several years, we've uh, filed those animals all the way through slaughter, making sure we're not doing anything with livers or uh, disrupting some of the uh, the rumen. So uh, it, it's been proven, it's been safe. I actually worked with Ag Econ to create a wonderful uh, uh, limit feeding kind of cost economic analysis where you can plug it into an Excel spreadsheet and figure out if it works for you and uh, due to commodity prices when it works. And you can find that spreadsheet on agmanager.info. I was going to say it, Dustin. <laughs> I knew that you were going to say that. So it, it uh, I think that really great research, AJ, because looking at shade and limit feeding and going back to the a little you explained a little bit of the why both those work and i think that's something people can take advantage of so great research is that published yet or out so it's actually it, it's we're hoping to have that in publication uh this fall okay so it's Excellent. uh it's 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 out there uh we have some interim reports and everything out that's been shared at stocker field day cattleman's day uh but actually in peer-reviewed publication we're hoping to have that uh, all the way through publication this fall excellent so we'll update keep us updated when that's out we'll share it with our listeners so they can find more information on that because i think a great topic really relevant to the industry one of the other things that's coming up and, and especially this time of year preg check time right? It's time for our cow-calf herds. So we'll shift away from the stalkers for a minute and think about our cow-calf herds. And it's time to preg check between now and for some people, the end of the year. So I, I wanted to find out from you guys, as you're going into that, it's pretty easy to maybe say, maybe dread preg check time from a producer standpoint, because I got to get the cows up. It's a lot of work. I'm going through the process. So I wanted to ask you, what are your goals with preg checking? What are the good things that I can achieve? What 
give me something to keep me motivated to get the cows up and go through the preg checking process. Yeah, I, I guess I can start on that. Uh, my biggest thing is I'm, I'm looking around the state and it's dry. I mean, it, it's really dry. We've, we've uh, kind of run the length of our pasture. I mean, we, we don't have a whole lot of forage availability out there that now, I mean, earlier as opposed to later, in my opinion, is, is a great choice because we can get some cows off of that grass and we can better manage those animals going into the fall if we can make a culling decision sooner as opposed to later. So if I, if I can make those decisions 60 or 90 days into gestation rather than third trimester, I'm dollars ahead. That's that much less feed that I, I may not have to haul out into a pasture somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Either feed or for, and, and you're right, because here and other areas of the country, it's dry and you may not get the fall regrowth that you were hoping for if you had plans for that and getting them off sooner is better. So that's a great reason to preg check now. Bob? Yeah, another thing that I really emphasize is there is definitely value in finding those open cows and marketing them and getting them off of, you know, drought-limited forages. But there's actually a lot more advantages that sometimes we don't think about, and that is finding out finding out when cows got pregnant. Because every every day that calf is out there growing, he's gaining two and a quarter, two and a half pounds a day. And if he's born 20 days earlier, that's, that is a significant amount of weight and dollars at weaning time. So I want cows to get pregnant early. I want as many cows as I can get to get pregnant in the first 21 days, the first opportunity to get bred in the breeding season. And so not only do I want to decide who's pregnant and who's open, I want to know who's pregnant in the first 21 days. I want to know, and then the other thing I can look at and I say who, because I really want to know by class of cattle, are there any classes that are kind of falling back? Is it, are my young cows not breeding up as well as my older cows or maybe vice versa? And so I want to know when they get pregnant. And then I want to know who isn't getting pregnant when I want them to, even if they become pregnant before the end of the breeding season. And to do that, you've got to preg check at a time where you can stay, not only say pregnant or open, but stage those pregnancies. Yeah. And my, my preference is, you know, out here 120 days or earlier after the start of the breeding season. If I can't do that, if I'm going to be out here 150 or something, I can still do some of that in that now I'm not as precise. Did they get pregnant in the first 21 days or the first 40 days? But I still want to make that differentiation is they got pregnant in the first 40 days or later than that. So wherever I can make that differentiation is I want to be able to confidently say who got pregnant, either my preferences first 21 days, but at least early versus late. And again, that's, that's a lot more valuable information than just pregnant or open. Philip, I wanted to think about as we, we talk about preg check, but one of the things that we often do as we pregnancy test is do a body condition score. How does having that information in the fall, how does that help me? Is that useful, valuable? What am I going to do with that? Yeah, um, it's very valuable. I mean, that's one of the times a year that we want a body condition score cows. Usually when we preg check, which is usually around weaning time, but it could be a little earlier. Um, and but then the other time that we think about it is about 60 days or so before the start of the calving season. Um, so basically, kind of like the, the end of summer and then the the end of fall or beginning of winter type time frame. Um, and that lets me make decisions about what do I need to do with those cows nutritionally to make sure they're in the right body condition score at the start of calving season, which 
for mature cows, we usually want them between a five and a six. And if I've got heifers or, or maybe even first calf cows, I want them closer to a six um, at the start of calving season, just to make sure that they're going to be able to maintain condition through that early lactation as we start into breeding season. And then that's going to affect my breed up <coughs> there after the calving season. So I start that process now because if I know I've got some thin cows right now, it's a lot cheaper and easier to put some more weight on them here going through the fall than it is in the winter when i got a lot of bad weather to to overcome that additional maintenance requirements absolutely so it's not just a preg check but it's using that management information to figure out what my ration needs to be and how i need to feed those cows so those are good reasons to preg check so as you're thinking about it I think leading into that is is really important. Also, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch back. We talked about heat earlier, but we talked about heat in confined cattle. I want to broaden that conversation, and whether it's growing cattle that are on pasture, I, I know AJ, you've had a lot of involvement in different operations trying to figure out how do we manage and mitigate heat. And I want to think about both growing cattle on pastures, summer grazing, and our cow-calf operations or other operations where you have more extensive grazing periods. How do I, we had a listener ask a question, how do I best handle heat stress in those scenarios? Mm-hmm. Now that's a, that, that, that's a great question. There's a lot of different answers to it. But to dive into it, I think number one, it starts with the basics, water. Water is absolutely critical. Not water for animals to go and lay in necessarily, but it's cons- consumable, clean, quality, cool you know, water source that they can, they have ready ready access to. So think about this. It, it, for those of you that have had been out to a farm pond or any kind of water source during the heat of the summer and you stick your hand in or you stick your feet in and the first six inches are like scalding hot, when cattle have to consume that water, they have to consume a much higher amount, many more gallons in, in a lot of circumstances on a per head per day basis, okay, just to maintain their body temperature. But if they have fresh access to cool, clean, readily available water, either from a well, uh, pump from a spring, or even pipe from a lower uh, level within a pond uh, to a a tank, they consume less, they're able to use that cool water to properly cool themselves, and then they can can go back to grazing, they can do what they need to. So for me, in a grazing scenario, an improved, cool, clean water source that's readily available, that's what I'm after. Yeah, and I think you you make an excellent point there, especially when we look at ponds. And this year we talked about it being dry. A lot of those ponds are have lost a lot of volume, meaning there's the wider shallow areas. The shallow areas is where they're getting to, and that may be all that's available is a relatively shallow area to water out of, uh, which which brings for some challenges. Bob, what what about you? What are you some? Know, Another couple of things that I think about, and I'm thinking kind of cow-calf production, but this would be true for grazing uh, yearlings or something as well, is forage matters a lot. You know, I, I grew up with uh, kind of n- not fescue, but then I got to spend some time in, in Missouri where we had a lot of clients that were dealing with fescue, and that, that taught me that uh, there's some differences as far as shade needs depending on um, the forage type. And so I... You know, I think uh, Philip has more experience with with fescue, but probably more of an emphasis on using shade and some other things like that in a fescue type pasture than you would in in more native grass type pastures. And you're saying fescue, but really you're talking about the endophyte that's yeah. in the that's in the fescue, and and that can cause some problems with 
heat management, thermal regulation with the cattle. When is that end of fight worse, Bob? Or Philip, let me ask you, since Bob brought it up, I'll let you ask, answer the question. So it typically spikes in like late spring, early summer um, in the forage. And, and there's two parts to that. One, um, you can have the endophyte in the plant tissue itself, and that, that, all, that spikes that time of year. But then you're also getting uh, seed head production in fescue at that time of year. And the seed heads are usually very high in the endophyte fungus. And so that creates a situation where those cattle are consuming a pretty highly concentrated amount of that, um, those toxins from that fungus. And for whatever reason, especially when the seed heads are young, cattle just like to eat seed heads. They will, they will just graze off the seed heads. And so they're consuming a, a pretty high dose of that ergovaline that time of year. Yeah, so certain times of year. And that ties into what AJ said with the water, right? So you have to have the water so that you can manage the grazing, which leads me to, Dustin, a, a question for you is, uh, often water is my limiting factor on these grazing cattle. We're talking about heat, but I want to manage my pastures. I want to manage them well. How do I figure out, can I justify the cost of putting in a new water system? Because it's a real challenge when some of these things are hard to quantify, right? What's the heat impact on my grazing cattle? It may be a few tenths of a pound per day. It's hard to put a number on. Is there a way that I can kind of think through that process or that math? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess my initial thought would be, I mean, you got to look at the alternative. I mean, is it a pond or are you hauling water X, you know, every day, every other day? How often? Because uh, you can, if you are, let's say, hauling water, you kind of can do a rough estimate, I think, on the cost. You know, you got to figure your time, transportation, et cetera. And then you can look at, Installing a water, what would that cost? I don't know if you got to put in a well, the labor, whatnot, and then you can, you know, look at kind of the net present value of that. Do some kind of capital investment uh, to see what, what is that payback period or how long that would take to, to pay off. So there are some ways I think one could look at that if, if they really want to. Yeah, I think that's a a great point. Is the the way you framed it? Look at the alternatives, right? What are the? Are you actually going to be hauling water? Do you have to water out of the pond? Is there something else you can do versus putting in that well? And it's, it's somewhat hard to quantify the benefit because the benefits you guys described, cattle a little more comfortable, grazing cattle, I might be able to measure that in pounds of gain. Cows, it's going to be really difficult for me to measure what, what difference did good quantity and quality of water make, but it's going to make a difference. But, but it's still the foundation. If the, but if I got the calves still on the cows, then those calves are also consuming a lot higher quality water. Well, and the cows are going to have to have, as far as I understand, they have to have water to make milk. Is that part of, I mean, that's a nutritional <laughs> question for Philip, but I think that's part of the equation. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big part of the equation. Well, and the other piece is we always, we always forget, you know, we talk about feed, we talk about water, but without water intake, they don't consume the, the amount of feed intake. Mm -hmm. So water drives feed intake in everything we do, whether it's lactation, whether it's putting on pounds of beef, they need water to be able to consume the feed to be able to convert that. Yeah, and and if you, and everybody believes you, but anybody that's had their water go out, even for a brief period, knows that water drives feed intake, right? All of a sudden, they could care less about feed and they're standing by the water trough. So something to keep an eye on. And I like I like the way you framed it. It's the, it's the good, both quality and quantity of water 
that really makes a difference in those in those cattle production performance moving them forward. So excellent topics there. And AJ, I appreciate you sharing. I, I wanted to mention again, the Stocker Field Day coming up on September 28th. So if you're interested, you can find information online. It's usually a great day with people interested in stocker cattle, good presentations, good discussion uh, back and forth. And we appreciate you spending a little bit of your time with us today, AJ. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So as always, if you have questions, comments, things that you'd like to talk about, we can see those on a future episode. You can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.